welcome to Bible study. It's very good to be with you again today. And thank you for tuning in with us. I would like to introduce the panel and not to lose any moment because we have a great study today. Next to me is Lija here. Welcome to the program, Lija. Hi, everybody. Helen, welcome again. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. And for the first time, we have uh, Mickey with us. Mickey, welcome to Bible study. Thank you, Nick. Len is our facilitator, and uh, straight away I, I just want to pass it to him and welcome Len to, to the Bible study. Yes, thank you, Nick. Hello, listeners. So far, in the last month or so, we've been discussing the preparation for the end times. This week, the subject we're dealing with is about the change of the law. Now, the first question we need to ask is, what law is this talking about? Well, in reality, there's really only one law where an attempted change has been made, and that's the law of God, the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue. And really, most people are quite happy accepting most of the points of the Ten Commandments, but there's one that seems to stick in their throat. It's about the seventh-day Sabbath, and these people, or many of them at least, have substituted another day instead of the seventh day. Today, the panel is going to discuss this particular issue. And we're going to start with a verse in Romans 5, verse 13, which says, Where there is no law, there is no sin. Helen, what does that mean? Well, I uh, believe it means that you can't be accused of wrongdoing if there is no law stating what's wrong. In other words, if you're driving down the road and there is no um, speed restrictions or whatever to say that you're breaking the law, well, how can you be charged for it? And similarly, if you um, have dirt on your face and you don't look in the mirror, you don't know that there's anything wrong. So, yeah, you can't be accused of wrongdoing if there is no law stating what's wrong. How do people get around keeping the law. There are usually two main tactics that people use to excuse themselves from keeping the law. What would you say to that, Helen? Well, I've often heard people say the um, law was done away with, it was abolished, nailed to the cross, it was a Jewish uh, law, we don't have to keep it. Others say, oh no, it's been changed. Okay, and I'm sure... You've heard those statements, those sorts of statements before. Now, if there's no law, there is no sin. If there is law, then there can be sin. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, or most of the letters in the New Testament, had something to say about that. What does Romans 3.23 say, Ledger? Paul is saying here that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It means all of us, all the human beings are touched by sin. No which, exception. Which really means all have broken God's law. Yeah. Mickey, there's another verse that Paul writes, Romans 5.12. Would you like to read that to us? Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all men, because all sinned. Okay. It's not rocket science. And you don't need to be a microbiologist to understand that simple statement. 
if there is sin, there has to be law. So where does the problem lie? Does the problem lie with the law or does the problem lie with people? Len, if I could just add something there. First of all, the problem lies with the fact that the law is called in the Bible God's law. And there is an enemy against God, which is Satan. And he will do anything he can to counterfeit and to change things and uh, take down God's law. And we as sinful people, we disregard the law. That's why sin came in this world first. And now people are trying to excuse themselves. Okay. So that, that was a good answer, Nick. But some people say, well, the law is the problem. But the Bible doesn't say that. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 7, verse 12. It says, therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Is anything wrong with that? Not at all. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this, he wrote a number of other statements on the same vein as what he's just said here, that the problem is not with the law. Lydia, you have something you would like to share with us. The law is what shows just how deadly sin is. The law is good in that that it points to sin. It just has no answer for it. Only the gospel does. Paul's point is that as Christians, as those who are saved in Christ, we need to serve in the newness of the Spirit. That is, we live in a faith relationship with Jesus, trusting in his merits and his righteousness for salvation. Okay, well now, as you heard before, there are two main excuses people give to um, say they're not required to keep God's law. Number one, they say that the law has been changed. And number two, that there is no law. The law has been abolished. And you know, way back about, uh, I think it was around about 600 BC, the prophet Daniel was given a vision in which he wrote, well, in which he heard this and he wrote it down. And he's talking about a power that'll do this. It says, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High. And here's the bit that I want us to take special notice of today. And shall intend to change times and law. And then it goes on to say, then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Now, who or what is this power? Well, for many years, starting back with the reformers, the reformers in particular, and many scholars since, say that Daniel was given a vision about the power being vested in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, we're not here to bash the Roman Catholics. But if you read that verse, that's Daniel 7, verse 25, you can see 
if you study history, that what it says there has happened. Now, one of the times and also laws concerns the fourth commandment about the Sabbath being on the seventh day. And some people say, well, the Sabbath's no longer the seventh day, it's Sunday. So, Mickey, what does the Bible say about when the Sabbath actually is? And that's in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So that's pretty clear, isn't it? At yes. creation, God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, and that was the day that he hallowed and blessed. Another verse, Exodus chapter 20, verses 10 and 11. This is the fourth commandment. Thanks, Ledger. Would you mind reading that? But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant man or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay. Now a lot of people say, well, the Sabbath was given to the Jews. But that text that uh, Mickey read from Genesis, there were no Jews at that time. The Jews haven't even been heard of. So the Sabbath wasn't made just for the Jews. As Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is the seventh day. In modern times, we would simply call that day Saturday. But many Christians worship on Sunday. Now, this is a quite a wide-open question panel. Does anybody have anything to comment about here? Well, I'd like to say that um, I haven't always been a true Sabbath keeper. I was brought up in another denomination and we just kept Sunday. We knew no different. Uh, we went to Sunday school, <clears throat> went to church, and um, I was absolutely stunned when I went to the Bible and found out what I, f what I know now about Sabbath and Sunday, Sunday being the first day of the week, and yet um, Saturday is the seventh day, and the, the command that's, that we read about definitely says to keep the seventh day. So for me, it was pure ignorance, really, I suppose, as to why we kept Sunday. Okay. Now, is there any biblical evidence authorizing a change in God's law? Now, I just want to, before you answer this, I just want to tell you a little experience. I was given some books once from a lady who belonged to a different denomination, and in there, it had the temerity to say this, that at the cross, God's law, the Ten Commandments, was abolished. We're going to look at that text on which they base that particular idea. And then it went on to say, later on, 
nine of those ten commandments were reinstated. You know, that frustrated me enormously because I've read the Bible cover to cover and I have not seen where God abolished and then reinstated nine of what was just and holy and good. The question is, is there any biblical evidence authorizing a change in God's law? No. No, no head shakes won't do on radio. No. <laughs> it no. has to be, you have to use your voice. Many people have searched, but not one has found anything to substantiate that. That's right. Yes, Legit. So do we observe God's commandments only because we think that they are wise and rational or because we believe they will make us happier? Contrary to either of these motives, the only rationality for keeping the law it, that is given in the law itself is that our God, the Creator, says, I am the Lord your God in Exodus 20, 20 verse 2. It is our personal and historical relationship with God of grace, the God who saved us and loved us, and the God whom we love in return that explains why we should keep these commandments. It is because He is our God. To change the law would shift that reason from God to ourselves. So it means the change of the law for another reason, our human reason, uh, would signify that we have replaced God by our our own fabrication. So this is called purely idolatry. Well, that's a pretty serious charge, isn't it? Yeah. If you decide to look at what God has said and then say, no, 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 this is not right. We're going to do it our way. Thank you, Frank Sinatra, for that the title of uh, that song. Mm. I'll do it my way. And in my opinion... That simply says, God, you don't know what you're doing. I know better than you, which is basically saying, I am better than you, which is self-worship. One thing, Len, which uh, I believe it's the, the important part in this Bible study is that when Paul is reasoning in chapter 7, from the beginning of chapter 7, he's talking about that the law cannot save us and because of that people think you see then we don't need to do anything about the law because we are saved only by grace of God which is true but that doesn't mean that the law was abolished because if we abolish the law we would not be able to see sin to be able to be forgiven and to be saved through grace of God which Paul in this great chapter chapter 7 which appears very difficult to, to understand, but if we study in context, we see that Paul is uplifting God's law and even saying how good and perfect is God's law. Not at all not needed. No, just come back to Helen's um, little analogy before about you've got a dirty face and then you go to the mirror and you'll see that you have a dirty face. By simply smashing the mirror doesn't make your face clean, does it? I was thinking the same thing. Your face has to be cleaned another way, and same with the sin problem. By simply saying the law doesn't exist, it's been abolished, well, then how does one identify sin in your life? And probably before we go further, why then so many people are... Uh, talking about this thing and are, um, how to say, uh, concerned about this. So many people trying to justify their their way of living 
by not keeping some of the God's commandments. Why is this thing happening right now? Do we have an answer like just top of our heads? I mean, they've tried to get around it. We're talking in particular about the law. No, we talk about the law, but in particular we talk about the fourth commandment about the seventh-day Sabbath. And the way others have got around it is to say, well, we don't need to keep the seventh-day Sabbath because Christ rose on the first day of the week. Therefore, we worship on that day to honour him. Now, that's not bad. That's fine. But it's not what God has actually said. He said the seventh day is the Sabbath. And that's what we'll look uh, even uh, further down the track uh, about those aspects of uh, the importance of keeping God's law and in this case Sabbath or um, setting up another day which we think it's even better. If the Bible can prove that, then we should go along with that. Well, I want to jump in with another red herring if I can. Colossians 2.14 It says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Well, you know, that says the law was nailed to the cross. So what's your answer to that one, Len? Okay. <laughs> um, it depends which version you read what was nailed to the cross. If you go back to the King James Version... It says the handwriting of ordinances mm -hmm. that was against us. Which I've just read. Mm. Yes. Uh, some more modern versions say the law that was against us. And people automatically think that's the moral law. Mm. But that then goes against what the apostles have to say. The apostle Paul, Peter, James and John all say that the law exists and that identifies sin. I'd like to share with you a couple of differences. We'll talk about the moral law and the ceremonial law. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 29, 30, 31, yeah. and uh, we'll see there when Moses wrote all those uh, laws which were placed next to the uh, ark, which was not like the Ten Commandments, the stone, which were placed inside of the ark, mm. those ordinances, even Moses says that those ones will stay against you. Each time you will do something, you know, you'll, you'll be challenged, you know, and, and punished. But God took away. That's the part of ceremonial law, which we are not going to go too much into that today, I believe, uh, because we need to do a study just on that. Um, but yeah, that's the one because Jesus, when he died, there was no need anymore on, of the sacrifices. The high priest became Jesus Christ. The blood was once and forever. The Lamb of God died for us and so on. Yeah, I'm coming. Actually, I was with you on that one. Nick, yeah, in Deuteronomy, in verse uh, chapter 31, verse 26, it says, Take this book of the law, and it was talking about what Moses had written, and it says, And put it on the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be, may be there for a witness against thee. So it was definitely was not the moral law. Yes. Now, this is a very important point, and I want to share something with you. And listeners, if... Um if you um, contact our producer, Nick, and you would like a um, 
concise list of the differences between the moral law and the ceremonial law, don't be afraid to call in and we'll try and get that to you. We'll probably need your email address, otherwise we'll be running all over the country with this list. All right, moral law. It was spoken by God. It was called the royal law. It was written by God. It was written on tables of stone. It was written with God's finger, and there are support verses for all these. It was placed in the ark. It was called the testimony, and also called the law of God. It lasts forever. It's a perfect law. It points out sin. It was not abolished by Christ. It was magnified by Christ, is holy and just and good, and faith establishes it. Now, I haven't given all the points, but now I want to share some things with you about the ceremonial law. It was spoken by Moses. It was called law, contained in ordinances. It was written by Moses. It was written in a book, which is probably not a codex book. A codex book is where you have pages to turn. It was probably more like a scroll, maybe leather. It was called the handwriting of ordinances. And as I think Nick pointed out, it was placed at the side of the ark. It was sometimes called the book of the law, sometimes called the law of Moses, sometimes called the ceremonial law. It came to an end at the cross. It made nothing perfect. It pointed to the sacrifice of Christ. It was given in consequence of sin. It was nailed to the cross. That's what we're talking about. And it was not abol abolished by Christ. And if it's kept now, it shows a lack of faith in Christ as the Saviour. What did Jesus say about changing the law? In other words, changing the moral law. Mickey. Do not think that I have come to abolish, abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay. And that's from Matthew 5.17. Thank you, Mickey. What does Matthew twenty four twenty say, Ledger? In the Bible is saying that we should pray. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on Sabbath. Yes. Now, Jesus was talking to his disciples and believers, and he was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70. And he said to them, You should pray that you don't have to flee for your lives on Sabbath because that's not a Sabbath activity. And he said you should pray that you will not have to go in winter because winter is a tough time. Yes, Helen? I believe that also saying about not fleeing on the Sabbath is because the gates were closed at sunset. And so they wouldn't then need to pray that they weren't going to, you know, get out if, if it was on the Sabbath day. So he was saying... You know, pray that it's not on the Sabbath. So you might have to knock in the wall, knock a <laughs> hole in the wall. <laughs> they wouldn't have got out. They wouldn't mm. get out. All right. So Jesus looking ahead. You know, if the if the moral law 
was abolished at the Christ. Why would Jesus talk about not fleeing in the winter or on, in particular, on the Sabbath day? You would think if such an important thing was to happen after Christ's crucifixion, he would have told the disciples about it. But you know, he never said a single word. In other words, there was to be no change. The law was to continue as had in the past. Well, now we're going to shift tack a little bit. There are three main verses in the Bible where people who try to avoid their responsibility by keeping the seventh day Sabbath use these verses to try to prove what they practice in keeping Sundays the holy day of the week. So, Helen, mm -hmm. first one is found in John 20, verses 19 and 20. Right, I'm reading here. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. I find that a very, very interesting text because number one, yes, all the disciples were there, but why were they there? Why were they assembled there? Uh, and was it actually a worship service? Well, if you read the text, they were assembled because of the fear of who? Jews. Yeah, fear of the Jews. And was it a worship service? Some people say, oh, yes, absolutely, they were there to worship. It was the first day of the week, as it says. But if you look into the text and look before and uh, into the other Gospels, you'll find out that at this time the disciples didn't even believe that Jesus had ascended, that he'd risen from the, the grave, I mean. They didn't even believe in the resurrection at this particular time. They didn't believe the women. So why would they have come to worship and celebrate the resurrection when they didn't believe it? Okay. So I don't believe that was referring to a worship day. I believe they were there. They were fearful of the Jews. Yes, mm. it was just hiding, really, mm. wasn't it? Um, that was the day that Christ resurrected. Now we'll look forward into time. And looking at Acts chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, of something that happened in Troas. And Lydia, would you be so kind as to read Acts 20, verses 7 and 8, please? Yes. In the Bible it says that on the first day of the week we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. So here, Paul, it says uh, in few verses um, before that, for example, in verse, so chapter 20, verse uh, 5, it says, This man went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So it means Paul was staying here a limited time, only five days. And I suppose he was there for, for the Sabbath. And he was preaching on the Sabbath, and after the Sabbath he was keeping on pre preaching and uh, talking to people in the room, because it says here it was night time and many lamps was in the upstairs room where we were meeting and because the Sabbath 
is ending at the sunset and they were going after the sunset they were they were, were called that was on the first day of the week so it was midnight Saturday Sabbath evening and going in after the sunset into the first day of the week which is Sunday this is what I understand right. the point is the Bible actually gives the reason why they were there they were there to break bread break bread in other words they were eating together yes which was the custom with the new believers as we read earlier some people believe though Len that uh, when it mentions breaking bread that means that it was virtually a worship service a communion but, service yeah, but if you look into scripture you'll say, see that that was a regular practice not not just on at the Sabbath that was a regular practice through the week yes breaking bread house to house yes mm. yes and as you rightly pointed out Lydia Paul was on this missionary journey yeah. he had probably a day and a half in a Troas before he was due to uh, disembark, disembark, embark, to go to Melita. And so the people there made the best of him, sharing what's happened with the spreading of the gospel throughout um, southern Europe or Asia Minor. So was there any mention in those texts that this was a normal worship service? No? Yes? No, no, it wasn't a normal worship service. Because I want to take a little bit over the next text, which it says in Acts 2, 46 and 47. It says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So it means they... They always meet together and they, they were together and talking about uh, Jesus, talking about the spiritual things and so on. So meeting together and eating together. But don't forget that word daily. Daily, yes. Mm. It means every yeah. day. We're going to go on from here and I want to read to you what many Sunday-keeping Christians regard as one of the key verses as far as Sunday-keeping is concerned. And it comes from 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through to 4. And the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. And then he says, On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now, just to provide some of the background, the believers in Jerusalem were heavily persecuted and a collection was taken up throughout Asia Minor where the Apostle Paul had been on his missionary journey to collect money to give to these believers in Jerusalem who were really suffering. He makes a request and says, look, you people ought to be giving something too. But then he puts it into practice and he says, 
On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing it up as he may prosper, that there may be, may be no collections when I come. Now, panel, if you were the church, or if you were church members at Troas, and you heard the Apostle Paul say this in his letter, what would you do? Exactly what he said. I'd lay it aside through the week. Where would you put the money? In a, in a, in a handkerchief, you know, whenever you, you, you just put some money aside to help those in need. So mm. uh, this is what we do now in our days. We put some, we set some money aside to help also the poor people. All right, you those who in struggle in their lives. The teapot on the mantel shelf or yeah. under the mattress or yeah. wherever you have, you might have a money box. I have a money box that I put my change in. It goes for missions and yes. helping people who have got health problems and so on I just put it in there and I forget about it does it say that the collection would be taken up at church it doesn't mention anything it about doesn't that. but Paul also says so that it's not collected when he comes now if it was going to be a worship service would not he be there at the worship service well maybe yeah yeah but it's simply saying to the people look I want you to practice giving mm. Put it aside. When I come along, you can bring all the money and I will take that money through to Jerusalem to help those persecuted believers over there. Here is mentioning actually that the collection should be taken before he arrives. And in verse, uh, the last part of verse 2, it says here, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made so the collection of the money is is taking place beforehand before he comes everything is set aside so when he comes maybe he will take the money and distribute to people in need absolutely mm. it was it was not a church meeting it was telling the people put the money aside at home why? But do it on a Sunday when the week starts, so then you won't forget. Yes. Uh, that's what I was going to ask. Why do you reckon Paul was uh, suggesting to do that on the first day? Why do you reckon the suggestion was to be collected on the first day? Um, I have an idea. Uh, I suppose that, uh, you know, as the, the end of the week ends on seventh day, you know, and uh, a new week starts mm -hmm. with the first day, yeah. you start to make plans for the following week. Yes. So when you start to make plans for the following week, in the plans we you include this and that and the other thing and so on. So you have to make plans in the first day of the week, as I, I do. I make plans in the first day of the week for the following week. My wife does the same. She does the washing on Sunday. She could do it Wednesday or th that's the way she plans the week mm -hmm. so that we've got all clean clothes and so on for the rest of the week. I mean, if it's any other other idea, because I was thinking along the line, Paul wouldn't say collect it on Friday because it's a day of preparation. There are some other burdens there. You know, he wouldn't say to do it on the Sabbath because it's the, the Sabbath was set up for something totally different. And another one is that after you've been spiritually filled with the, with the spiritual food, you are more inclined to have an open heart and a good spirit to help other people. Fair so we've had fair. three uh, lots mm, of verses mm. which many Protestants, Sunday-keeping Protestants, I should say, use to try to prove 
that Sunday was then the worship day. But those verses don't substantiate the claim. Now, I want to read to you, and this is very important, folks, I want to read to you some statements by leading Protestant theologians. I haven't got time to read the multiplicity of them, but I want to read just a few. Here's one from the Methodists, and it's uh, by John Wesley himself, and we give the uh, reference to that, but I won't do that just now. It says, The moral law contained in the Ten Commandments and enforced by the prophets, Jesus did not take away. It was not the design of his coming to revoke any part of this. This is a law which can never be broken. Not that you can't sin, but you can't pull it apart and change it. damage it, mm -hmm. yes. Every part of this law must remain in force upon all mankind and in all ages. Now I want to read to you a statement from the Lutherans. This is by John Muller, and he writes this. These churches, he's referring to these Sunday-keeping churches, these churches err in their teaching, for Scripture has in no way ordained the first day of the week in place of the Sabbath. There is simply no law in the New Testament to that effect. Now I want to read to you what the Roman Catholics have to say. And this is from the Catholic Virginian, October 3, 1947. Nowhere in the Bible do we find that Jesus or the apostles ordered that the Sabbath be changed from Saturday to Sunday. We have the commandment of God given to Moses to keep holy the Sabbath day, that is, the seventh day of the week, Saturday. Today, most Christians keep Sunday because it has been revealed to us by the Roman Church outside, notice that, outside the Bible. Last quote, this is from the Baptists, written by William Owen Carver. He's a theologian. He says, There was and is a commandment to keep holy the Sabbath day, but that Sabbath day was not on Sunday. It will be said, however, and with some show of triumph, that the Sabbath was transferred from the seventh day to the first day of the week. Where can the record of such a transaction to be found? And this is what he says then, not in the New Testament. So the Bible does not support a change in the worship day. Now, Helen, I want to ask you this. Mm -hmm. How can we know that Saturday and not Sunday is the Sabbath? If you look for a start into languages right across the world, the seventh day is normally referred to the Sabbath, isn't it? Or Sabato, or, you know, in other languages, it comes through as the Sabbath. Not the seventh day of the week, but it's, it's usually got the word Sabbath in it, which is, is one thing. But there's also, if you do look at the Jewish nation, they continue to worship on Saturday. Yeah. I don't think the Jews got it wrong. No. They continue to worship on Saturday. In fact, while we're talking about the Jews, when, G when um, God sent manna to them in the wilderness, what happened on the Sabbath? Did God send manna on the Sabbath? Well, no. you know, if he sent it every day and he said to them, collect what you need for the day, but if you keep any over through the week, it will rot. And some people tried that.
And then he came to the preparation day, which was the Friday, and he said, collect enough for two days and it won't rot. Why did it not rot? Because God was honouring the Sabbath and he wanted his people to remember that as well. Mm. So I think that's a very good example as well. But if I look up Luke 23, uh, verse 53, to Luke 24, verse 1, let me just share this with you, please. It says here, um, in Luke 23, 53, it says, He took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulchre that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. And that day was, what, is, what does that day say, panel? Yeah, preparation day. That day was a preparation day and the Sabbath drew on. Mm. So obviously the preparation day is just before the Sabbath, which we um, look at Friday. And then it goes on to say, And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after, beheld the sepulchre, and how his body was laid. They returned and prepared spices and ointments. And what did they do on the Sabbath day, panel? They rested. They rested according to the commandment. So in their minds it hadn't been changed either. So they rested on the Sabbath. And chapter 24 verse 1 says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulchre bringing the spices which they had preferred and certain others with them. And, of course, you know, they discovered that Jesus had risen and he rose on the first day of the week. So we have the preparation day Friday, we have the Sabbath Saturday, we have the resurrection day on Sunday. And you do notice that most Christianity observe that when, when they keep Easter. Yeah. Lucia, what did you want to say? Yes, I wanted to say that also Jesus kept the Sabbath holy. So if we read in, uh, in the Bible, in Luke chapter 4, 14 and 16 to 16, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read the scroll of the pro prophet Isaiah. I yeah. guess so, that explains Lydia too why as his custom was he did it in life he also did it in the, when he was in the tomb didn't exactly, he? Exactly, yes. Right, as his custom was. Yes. Now before you have your say here Nick I want to just tell you something. In 1979 I went with my family overseas and we spent some time in Europe and I was very surprised to see the calendars. If you look at a calendar, most many calendars these days start off Monday as the first day of the week and they end up with Sunday as the last day of the week. And That was an initiative I believe I was told this, so it happened in Germany by the Roman Catholic Church. Maybe it was a kind of a sneaky way of saying, well, we keep Sabbath because we worship on the seventh day of the week. But not all calendars are like that. Some have remained as they were prior to this time. And uh, when we buy a calendar, we get a proper calendar that starts on Sunday and not starts on Monday. Now, Nick. I was just going to say that, um, as you pointed out a bit earlier, Len, uh, some of the theologians and, um, you know, even Catholic Church itself wouldn't openly say that uh, 
Sabbath, it's Sunday. They will recognize what the Bible says, but they will bring up front their authority, saying that we, as we are here on this earth, the representatives of Jesus Christ, as they pointed out, we change it in favor of the resurrection day. You know, to worship God because we are saved through Jesus Christ and that's why we want to, we, we want to keep this day as holy and the worship day, which the Bible doesn't support that. But the trick is here. Most of the people, the majority of people, will just along with the practice which is shown over the years, not even question back where the situation is um, uh, right now. Now, we've just talked about what Jesus normally did on the Sabbath. But what was the practice of the Apostle Paul on the Sabbath? Nick, uh, Mickey, what does it say in Acts thirteen fourteen? From Perga, they went on to Pisidian, Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. Okay. So it basically means they went to church, except there was no Christian church. So they went to the Jewish church, which yeah, was the synagogue. It, and it says also that uh, they were reading from the law of the, and uh, the prophets in the synagogue. Yeah, which was a fairly normal thing. Yeah. Now, what about Acts 13, verses 42 to 44, Mickey? As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts in Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Okay. Now, Paul spoke to the people on many days and any day of the week. But on this particular occasion, he worshipped with the Jews, in this case, on the Sabbath. Now, there's another record in the New Testament about what Paul and some of his um, fellow workers did on the Sabbath. Helen, would you read Acts 16, verses 12 and 13? Yes. It says here, And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. What I found interesting is verse 13 on that one. You know, here we've got Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, and they met with the women on the Sabbath, but not in the synagogue this time. It was interesting. It occurred outside of the synagogue, but they were still worshipping on the Sabbath. They were meeting beside a river, and it was customarily there that they did that. So it was their custom, and they went to pray. And they did it on the seventh-day Sabbath, many years after the death of Jesus, too. If a change in Sunday had occurred, nothing in that text occur, you know, refers to it. No. Yeah. So the practice of Jesus, as his custom was, it says, he worshipped in the synagogue on the Sabbath. The custom of the Apostle Paul was basically the same. On the seventh day Sabbath, he went and worshipped together with other people. Talking about the commandments and their importance, 
Revelation is the book uh, particularly about end times. What does Revelation chapter 14 verse 12 have to say about God's people? In, in Revelation uh, 14 verse 12 says, it's written that this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Okay, it doesn't say who obey some of God's commandments, it says obey his commandments. So, as far as I'm concerned, this identifies who God's people are. Question. That of course, sorry, Len, that yeah. of course is talking about the end time. Of course. Yeah, so course. that obviously the commandments are still in effect. Yes. And um, that includes the Sabbath. Yeah. Yes. This is what we're talking about, um, mm. things to do with the end times. Now, the question is, will keeping God's commandments save you? Mickey, what does Romans 5, 1 say? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So will keeping the commandments save you? No? no I can see no. a lot of heads shaking, no. but no. <laughs> we need words. No, they Absolutely won't. Absolutely not. They cannot. Only Jesus They're is there to point out sin. Well, if the commandments don't save you, why keep them? Mm. Helen. What does 1 John 5 verses 2 and 3 say? That was such a good question. Why keep them? Yeah. Well, this says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. I, um, I keep the commandments because I love him. And he asked me, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that includes the Sabbath day. I'd just like to read something that I came across just the other day. And I was sharing it with Len earlier. I want you to imagine a sunny day at the beach. You plunge into the surf and then you notice a sign on the pier. It says no swimming or sharks in water. Well, right then your day is ruined. Are you angry with the people who put up the sign? Well, the law is like that sign. It is essential. And just like that sign at the beach is essential and you're grateful for it, but it doesn't get rid of the sharks. No. No, you can get rid of the sign, but the <laughs> sharks are still there. Still there. And that's an analogy. Now we're going to the very last point today. And the question is, what do you think that God thinks about the people who choose to change his law, his commandments? And I want to read to you from the very last book in the last few verses of the Bible. That's Revelation chapter 22 and verse 18. Can I just pause there for a moment? Yes. Then and ask you a question. You're Those, asking me a question. Yeah, I am. Those who keep the Sabbath are often called legalists. What would you give in reply to that? Well, I actually spoke about this a little bit earlier. Mm, I'm just going to put you on the spot. I'll point the finger back yeah. at them and say, well, if you keep <laughs> this commandment or that one, mm -hmm. aren't you being a legalist? Mm -hmm. and so that's a, that's a spurious argument, a spurious statement to say that anybody who keeps the Sabbath is a legalist, but the argument turned around, if you don't com commit adultery, aren't you being a legalist? It's exactly the same thing. 
Uh, just a little bit more on that one. Uh, there are people saying all sorts of things. If you don't do this, then you are not saved. If you don't speak in tongues, you are not saved. If you don't uh, uh, name God by His right name, you are not saved. And if you don't keep the Sabbath, you're not saved. You know, people say that. Yeah, you'll mm-hmm. say all those things. But actually, we are saved only by the grace of God. Amen. And all other things we are keeping and observing because we are saved and it's a response because we love God as uh, was pointed out we keep his commandments and uh, you cannot say that you love God and do whatever you like with your life because when you love somebody then you you kind of match with the person and do what the person asks so you're virtually saying we are not saved by keeping these things, but we keep them because we are saved. Yes. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, you wanted to say something before I read these fairly <coughs> serious verses. Yes. I want to say that the law of God, the moral law, for me is it's a gift from God. It's an expression of his love towards love, towards people, towards everybody who loves who loves God and believes in him. Paul is um, expressing his acceptance in his writings, saying that the law of God is a delight for him. And um, I would like to say that it is only God, the only one, who changes the times and the seasons. This is what it says in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 2, verse 21. The Sabbath is the only one, the Sabbath and the, the moral law, is the only one who will serve at the end times as a test of faithfulness. And already in the in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was given as a sign between God and his people. And uh, it's a visible sign that God is the one who sacrifices them. Uh, it says in Exodus 31 verse 13 and Ezekiel 20, 12. Uh, the place of the Sabbath it's the center of Decalogue. It's the center of the moral law, which was the very place of the seal in ancient covenant treaties. The book of Revelation uses the, uh, the Old Testament symbol of faithfulness to the law of God as a sign on the forehead and on the hand, which it's men- is mentioning in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 to describe the one who joins the camp of the enemy or of God and worship is the beast. So this suggests that the person in question is, has submitted to a spurious law that has replaced the law of God. And in the end times, God will seal his people through these symbols of keeping the moral law, the Decalogue and the Sabbath. But in the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, this is what the Bible says. For I, this is the prophet John, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. 
This is a warning. It's a serious warning. That if we think we have the authority or the temerity to change what God has set in stone, which he's written with his own finger in stone, which the apostles, which Jesus said, last forever, then we are in danger of losing our own eternal life. Listeners, it's been a pleasure sharing this with you today. Some of you will uh, regard this as a challenge. Some of you will see that it's a way of you expressing your love to God who loves you so very much. So until next time, I'd like to say God bless and join us again next time.